Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Aaron Hedlund, Elias Chapellis, and David Stokes from the Show Me Institute. So yesterday in the United States Senate, our, our freshman Senator Eric Schmidt delivered his uh, maiden United States Senate speech, and that's a historically that's a pretty big event for all new new freshmen. And two things. First of all, I was delighted with the topic because the topic was ways to dismantle the administrative state and how it affects Missouri, but of course affects everybody. So I just love that our senator is really focused on trying to go about the very, very difficult hard work of cutting the administrative state, cutting the regulatory state to increase freedom for all of us. So Props to that speech topic. But the other the other thing I thought was it'd be funny to have all the hype of your maiden speech before the Senate and you know airing it on airing it online on social media and all the hype and then to go up and, and give a speech about some obscure provision of federal tax law that like nobody has anything about, like like increasing the federal employee federal employee retirement contribution rate from four point four to four point six or or changing the estimated June tax deadline to July 15th from June 15th. Like, that'd be funny to, like, just sort of be this giant letdown of obscure, obscure inside the Bellway tax facts. You don't think parts of that speech could be clipped for a future campaign ad that wouldn't work for social media fodder? I, th- I think it'd be trickier, but I, I want to see a freshman senator who gives the, the most obscure, boring tax speech ever. That said, I think uh, Senator Schmidt's topic was outstanding. All right, Aaron. CPI, inflation went down 11 months in a row. Headline, we're at 4%. Core, a little bit stickier at 5.3. What was your reaction from the numbers yesterday and uh, how are you feeling? Well, first of all, I, for one, would love to see some 30-second campaign ads that, that deal with really nitty-gritty stuff. That would be quite a, quite a shift. And uh, today, I like to think of myself as the Lincoln lawyer uh, from the car here, except I'm not paid like a lawyer, so I'm more like the, the Ford economist. Uh, but it's it's something decent anyway. Uh, as far as the inflation numbers go, rarely do economists tout their predictions because they usually go awry. But nevertheless, I think back in December or January, put out a, a show me blog that said that by early summer, we could get inflation below 4%. What we saw in the data yesterday was year-over-year inflation at exactly 4%. So it's, it's coming down, which is great. I, I thought it would. And part of that is statistical. We had really, really high inflation for a, for a few months uh, in the late spring a year ago. And it w- wasn't likely that that was going to continue. So I thought that those numbers would kind of get replaced. And the other thing is the Fed tightening has, has done its job. I mean, it's, it's taking longer than expected. It, it could have been a lot less painful if the Fed had jumped in earlier and not waited so long. Uh, but what we're seeing is you know, we're getting closer. But the, the key thing is, there's no such thing as almost landing the plane, right? The target is 2%. Close isn't good enough. You have to, you have to actually get there. So we're on the right path, but we're not there yet. All right. So uh, a question about the components, and then I want to talk about the landing. So in the report earlier this week, the two components that seemed like it really held up the numbers were shelter and used cars. These are two things that people have been saying for a few months that eventually they would roll over. What do you think is holding up shelter at this point? Do you have any theories? Yeah, so shelter is an interesting one, and and that's actually very lagged. Uh, Just the way they construct indices of rents is is, it's not keeping track with the latest rents. Because the way it works is you sign a lease, 
And that lease usually goes for 12 months. So if leases went up several months ago, that kind of is sticky in the data. So it looks like they're still really high. There are some uh, some other analysts who have recomputed the CPI where they replace the, the, the kind of official rent estimate with just the rents that are from new leases. And if you do that, then the number is even lower. So things look like they're going in a good direction. And, and shelter is just going to take a little while to catch up as people roll over into new leases. So we're recording this on the morning that um, the later this afternoon, Jerome Powell is going to give his press conference. The Fed's going to let us know if they raise rates. It looks like there's a, from the, the Fed's futures, there's a about a 97% chance people are uh, factoring in that they're not going to do anything today. This, this meeting will not be a live meeting. So the first hike was March 2022, and it seems like there's going to be a pause. My question, based on what you just said about lag data, is it seems like that the Fed might be making some sounds, and I guess we'll see this afternoon, that there could be a pause. So in July, there could be another rate hike. My question is, is if you think that CPI in July will continue to fall and they're looking at lagged data and they acknowledge that there are lagging and varied effects of the rate hikes they've already done, why would a hike in July make any sense? Yeah, it's a good question. And it it is a challenge to think about the lagged data because actually if you go to kind of fall of 2021, when the whole transitory inflation story was still around, there were a couple months of data where it looked like the job numbers were weak and where inflation was coming down. And there was at least some fuel for the idea that it was transitory and then the Fed didn't take a whole lot of action. And then a couple months later, the jobs numbers were revised up. So it's sort of like the labor market was stronger than they thought. And then inflation picked up again. So um it, there's a little bit of leeway that's kind of forgivable given the lag data. Nevertheless, I still think they should have started acting sooner. Uh, as far as what I think is going to happen next month, yeah, I think the number is going to come down again a lot because what we just got yesterday was May data released in June. And what we're going to get in July is June data. And if you look at June of 2022, it was a really big number. In all likelihood, it's not going to be a really big number at a monthly level. So that's going to get replaced and it's going to look good. So I'm thinking we're going to get headline inflation of mid to low threes next month. So to me, really, the big question is what happens after that? Like what happens in September, October? That's a big question mark. Uh, I, I think it's smart for the Fed to take a data-dependent approach. I personally would still recommend that they do a, a small rate hike now just because the Fed's credibility is the number one thing they need to maintain. And until inflation is actually at 2%, you can't say mission accomplished, and it's not there quite yet. So when you say 2%, two questions about that. One, when you say 2%, do you mean 2.0? Like if we get to 2.6, 2.7, is that going to be good enough? I would say 2.0. I would like to see an inflation number that hits 2 or falls below it. Okay. And the 2% number, that's a decade old, right? That's a Bernanke number in 2012. Um, is there any reason to think that not right now, but in the future, they could be looking at raising that target to two and a half, three. So there are some active debates on what the inflation target should be. But I think the most important thing, as I mentioned a second ago, was that it was Fed credibility. So right now they've said 2%. So what that means is you need to achieve that target before you potentially announce any shift in target. If you announce the shift before you get to two, then you're basically just 
admitting that you can't actually get to what you said you're going to get to. Um, so I, I see those as separate things. First, you get to two, then we can debate to go higher. I mean, I would, I don't think there's a compelling reason to go higher, really. I mean, the main argument there is if you have a higher inflation target, then whenever there's a future recession, there's more room to cut rates. But I think the Fed has so many tools beyond just standard rate cuts that I don't see the necessity of doing a higher target. Okay. And finally, you mentioned the landing question, soft landing, hard landing, no landing. Um, It does sound like that we're within 25, 50 basis points, or maybe we're there, of the rate hike. So we're near the end of the hiking cycle one way or another. To torture the metaphor a little bit more on this soft landing, hard landing, no landing, is the landing gear out? Is Are the, the flight attendants going around with the little bag, taking everyone's trash? When are we going to be on the tarmac and someone will either say, boy, that was a smooth landing or we'll be off in a ditch somewhere. It, when when will we be able to stop talking about how this landing is going to go? Yeah, well, to, to keep torturing the analogy, when, when, the, when the plane is flying at 35, 40,000 feet, that's usually when the, the, the flight's the smoothest. When you're getting to that low altitude approaching the airport, that's sometimes when the gusty winds and things, it can be a little bumpier. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. Inflation's going down, which is great. But the Fed can't just say, oh, well, we're at three point whatever next month. Good enough. That doesn't count. You have to actually get to two. And if if we can't get to do, then they may have to raise rates further. So it, we may be 25 basis points away. Maybe we're even there in terms of rates. But if by fall inflation's still not down enough, then the Fed's going to keep on going. And I think that's going to upset the markets a bit because the markets are desperate for for rates to, to start going down. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So, I mean, I think um, I just think it's going to be a really interesting and uncertain fall about whether we get all the way there or not. So if we get to 2% in the fall, it's September. We're at um, 2%. There hasn't been another banking crisis. There isn't a credit crunch. Unemployment isn't at 4.3%, 5% is that is that a soft landing will people or will we still be hovering over the the runway i think if inflation gets down to two percent and you know 2.9 is not two i mean actually two and then that's a great that's a great outcome i mean i think that i mean i should say great outcome given that the fed is the only institution that's doing anything about inflation right now we could be at a much better outcome if congress and the white house could get together and put forward some pro-growth supply side policies that could basically, you know, if you think about inflation, it's too much money chasing too few goods. The only thing the Fed can control is the money side. They can basically contract demand and make it more expensive for people to borrow. If we had policies that were reducing regulatory barriers and reducing tax barriers so that the economy produced more, then you could get lower inflation and more growth. So when I say great outcome, that's it's all given that we're not doing the best stuff we could be doing. Um, and yeah, I think that really it's a 50-50 chance whether the economy goes into a mild recession or just kind of an anemic growth situation. Right now we're in an anemic growth situation. That seems Sh- fair. Showing my two hands, two-handed prediction. But, <laughs> but we will not be in a crisis. Well, we were in a crisis with COVID, Elias. They, uh, it was a state of emergency. And one of the programs that uh, was... The, the dynamics of the program were changed during the COVID crisis was Medicaid. The federal government said during the crisis, 
just leave it alone. We're not updating the roles. People who are on the program are not going to be taken off the program. The COVID crisis officially ended in May, I believe. And so now the federal government has decided they're going to do something that's called Medicaid unwinding. So my first question is, what is Medicaid unwinding? Well, going going back just to April, essentially what this unwinding is, is the idea that the state is going to start looking at the people that are on their Medicaid rolls and start determining, or what they will call it a redetermining, uh, whether the people on the rolls um, are eligible to stay there. And so this unwinding is essentially the federal government will be pulling back some of their um, additional COVID um, spending because part of the deal was states cannot be removing people from the Medicaid program that aren't eligible. They're not checking, so they don't know if they're eligible. But the federal government threw some extra money at the states for that. Well, the federal government saying, we're going to be pulling back that money. It's time to start checking again. And uh, that's what states started doing back in April. So you say states. Does that include Missouri? Well, Missouri, you know, the what's the saying? They're, they were in the planning stages. So states like Florida, Arizona, um, many states were ready on April 1st. Um, they were actually given warning back in December that the unwinding was going to start in April. Uh, many states started their preparations then. Missouri, as far as I can tell, kind of dragged their feet a little bit and started on April 1st, just getting things together. Um, And so then mid-May, they started sending out the actual um, redetermination letters. And so now, where we look across the country, states like Florida, Arizona, others, have found upwards of 20% of their Medicaid population were actually ineligible to be receiving services. Missouri's not really going to be able to make a determination like that until um, July. So if we stick with that somewhere in that 20% ballpark, how many people in Missouri are on Medicaid? So how many people might we be talking about who are on the rolls who uh, should not be? So currently, or at least the most current numbers we have, the state hasn't been updating enrollment for a little bit. We're looking at about 1.5 million Missourians are on the Medicaid program. So you're you know, above that 20% of state population number. And so if you say 20% um, are ineligible, you're looking at 300,000 people. And when talking about just how Medicaid works, this is the program where the state is paying essentially insurance companies monthly, regardless of whether, you know, anyone receives services. It's basically like, you know, our health coverage, essentially. So, there's real money here because every month that the state is paying for someone on Medicaid that doesn't want or need or qual- or is qualified for this coverage, state taxpayers are paying money on this. So just a rough example, you know, if there are 300,000 people on the state's Medicaid program that aren't eligible to be receiving services, the state could be wasting over $150 million per month. You're talking $2 billion per year, roughly, on uh, Medicaid waste. And so it was something where I was really hoping that the legislature was going to not be dragging their feet and was going to be ahead of the game like some of these other states to kind of combat this uh, wasteful spending we've been seeing. Could this be a project where we you've spoken before about uh, the state workforce, people who work for the state government? It seems like a pretty labor-intensive process. Could this be something where both the state's outdated technology and maybe a little bit of a, a state labor shortage comes into play? There's definitely some of that. I mean, as soon as people get the letters uh, in the mail um, that will 
it'll have a variety of information they're asking, you know, what's your address? How much money do you make? How many people are in your family? A lot of people's first response is going to be to call the number on the sheet of paper, you know, and um, there the call centers. There's always stories of the call centers being overworked. The state technology, I think, you know, I think part of the reason the state could have dragged it, dragged its feet on getting this process going was, you know, maybe it took a while to get the state's um, system to really figure out who was eligible or not. Because the the articles that have been talking about Florida, Florida is the one that, um, you know, national coverage has been looking at because they've supposedly kicked off over 250,000 people from their Medicaid program already. But what the leaders of the Medicaid um, program there have been saying is that they went through their system and basically found the people that they knew were no longer eligible and they sent them the letters for um, qualifying or for removing them from the program or recertifying their eligibility on April 1st. And I just want to make one thing clear on this, which is that if someone gets removed from the Medicaid program, this is not to say that they're going to rack up some amount of medical debt. If something happens and you don't respond to the letter um, or you're found ineligible for the Medicaid program, um, if you become eligible again within 90 days, you will come back on. You don't have to do another application if you can prove that information. But also, if you go to the hospital in that period and you were eligible the whole time, even if you got disenrolled, the state will go back and pay all of your medical bills for the past three months. So this is not a situation where states are, um, you know, going out of their way to make, um, you know, make healthcare out of reach for people that require Medicaid services. This is really going back to prior to the pandemic, federal law states that um, it is required for um, Medicaid programs to check whether people on the program remain eligible. Because if you're paying monthly for these things and there's real money on the line, you want to be sure that people still want this coverage. And there's tons of people, what is called churn, that go on the program, come off the program all the time. And the federal government stopped that. We're getting back to it. And people dropping off the program is actually probably a good thing. Well, that's an important point to make. It's not just a cost-saving measure. It's so that this program is available, efficient, for the people who need it, for the people who qualify. It's a safety net program, and you want it to be sustainable. And right now, it's not. And there, there's plenty of reason to think that a lot of people on the program don't even you know, necessarily know they're still on it. I mean, there, there's, there's a reason for the churn, and the, the churn of enrollees is really a situation of, you know, something happens, you qualify for Medicaid, you get, you know, yourself, your kid on the program, um, and then you get a job, you get back to work. Um, and COVID, you know, that I'm assuming was an experience a lot of people went through. And then they went back to work and they got employer-sponsored health coverage like a lot of America. And they didn't go through the work of sending a notarized letter to the state, you know, to remove them from the rolls or something. Oh, the and, notaries were swamped. <laughs> so, a lot so of the lines know. outside the notary offices. But, you know, this, this is just a situation where I think there there's a lot of room for uh, money to be saved there. And as the federal government is pulling back their COVID relief across all of state government, you know, this is, this is a space where um, there's tons of money to be saved with basically no cost to the people that, um, you know, are being removed. But that, that is not to say that the state should not be doing a good job of being sure that, um, you know, people that are entitled to this coverage aren't removed unnecessarily. And my last question, is this something where the uh, state government can look for outside help? Well, this is something that I was hoping that they would be doing. You know, the the idea was that the federal government 
basically said early in the pandemic that they would be warning states months in advance before they would start um, unwind this Medicaid unwinding. And what happened was there were many times that it seemed like President Biden was going to be, you know, ending the public health emergency. Well, it eventually happened. The announcement came in December. And really, we knew this was going to be an enormous, this was going to be an enormous task for states because there's, as I said, 1.5 million people that need to get their eligibility checked. And so I was hoping that the state would use some money to, you know, hire workers to help them get this process going. And they, you know, didn't because there's, there's plenty of room to, um, you know, help with the paperwork, help with the call center. That's what a lot of states have done. You know, they get additional call center help just because this is a, this is way more than states normally do in a year. And while the federal, federal government gives them a period of time that they can finish these over, I think they have about a year. Um, there's real money on the line here. So expediency is the key. David, there's a couple areas where local governments in the state of Missouri could use some help. Just a couple. Just a couple. One of those was demonstrated over the weekend in the St. Louis area. There were um, more than 12 water main breaks around the St. Louis area. What does it tell you about the state of the um, St. Louis City water and water? What do you think we can do to uh, make sure that doesn't happen? Well, we can privatize it. We can privatize the St. Louis City Water Division. So what this tells us about the state of the water system is that it's in poor shape, some of which is just because it's old. I mean, you've got to give some allowance for the fact that it's a very old system. But like, like any municipal utility, you know, politicians have a benefit from holding rates low. They, their voters are the same as their customers. So like most, like all municipal utilities, maybe not all, the vast majority, you know, the services are underpriced. And I read a study a long time ago that says one of the difference between municipal utilities and private, private or investor-owned utilities is that investor-owned utilities tend to raise prices a small amount each year in order to keep up investment, whereas government-owned utilities tend to keep it steady for a long time till it gets to the point where you can no longer hold it so low and then they have to make a giant price increase, which is exactly what they're proposing right now in the city of St. Louis, an enormous water price increase uh, in order to get a hold of all these problems that they've been having in the past month. And that price increase is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's completely necessary. But it just goes to show the failure of the city water division over the years and the city board and the city elected officials to charge the proper rate for water in the city and to invest in the system to maintain it. They haven't done that. I mean, I could shout this every day of my life. They still don't have water meters in the city of St. Louis. I mean, this is 19... 30s, 1940s technology, which the city never adopted for residential homes. You still just pay water. You pay a flat fee for for water. So you can sprinkle your lawn every day of your life till you have the Garden of Shangri-La out there, and you're not going to pay any more for it than your, than your neighbors. So it's insanity. They haven't charged enough. Just because they might temporarily raise rates to try to address it, doesn't mean I would have any faith that over the long run that the elected officials won't go back on it and try to go back to getting the political gain from holding rates down. So absolutely, the city of St. Louis should seek to privatize the water division, 
how much they could get for it, I have no idea because nobody really knows how bad the situation is deep underground for the pipes. Nobody really knows just how expensive it will be to fully repair those pipes and get them up to, to proper condition. It, it's probably an enormous cost. So the value of the water division, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say, but it's time to get it into private hands as a regulated utility, just like all of St. Louis County is served by private water, just like much of Missouri is, and just like the City of Independence is finally thinking about doing with their municipal electric utility right now. I had an op-ed in the inve- in, um, sorry in the Independence Examiner a week or so ago uh, supporting the decision by the city council to investigate privatizing their electric system, which despite the, despite the advantages in taxation and, and governance and regulation that they have over private electric companies, they admit that they still charge more than their competitors because they're not operating the system very well. So absolutely independent should privatize, their electric utility and their water utility. And the city of St. Louis should should privatize their water utility. And then the holy grail of all of this, of course, is for Springfield to break up their behemoth city utilities and to privatize that into three or four different pieces. And when that's done, I can officially retire. Uh, to your knowledge for the St. Louis city water, is this something that in the uh, recent past or the distant past that has been talked about? Is this a kind of a, a sacred cow like or is this just something that hasn't been brought up before? It's a sacred cow with a lot of leaks. Imagine a dairy cow that uh, you're trying to put some of the milk into the proper bucket, but also some of the milk is just going everywhere because it can't properly keep control of, of any of it. That's the uh, proper metaphor here we're going we're to go with. A, a poorly trained sacred cow. Uh, so no, a, a while back, 10 years ago or so, the city of St. Louis simply tried to contract with the private company Veolia, which is a major water utility. But they didn't want to do, work with Veolia to privatize the system. They simply wanted to hire them as consultants to be outside consultants to the water division. And people went ballistic as if this was some, you know, camel's nose under the tent to to privatize this to privatize the system i don't even think that that contract passed i think it was defeated if memory serves and that was nothing more than a very modest consulting contract the type of thing that a government like the city of st louis does all the time hiring consultants to advise them on certain things so no there isn't an effort in the city of St. Louis to privatize it. There should be. I mean, all of St. Louis County, thanks to thanks to uh, Eureka, Missouri, privatizing their water and sewer system a year or so ago, finalizing the deal, all of St. Louis County is now served by private water. Kirkwood technically has a municipal water system, but all they do is buy it from Missouri American and resell it to their customers. So it's not really private. It's not really public water. I think that if they can serve the million of people of St. Louis County just fine, that they could serve the 280 or so thousand people of St. Louis City just fine. And absolutely that should be done. And independents should, should do the same thing. It's, there's no reason that cities should be operating their own municipal water or electric utilities in 2023. The, the system has been working for a long, long time for a regulated investor-owned system serving those communities, and that's what Independence and St. Louis should both be going for right now. All right, well, we'll keep track of uh, both of those stories. All right, moving to wrap up, we're going to see what everyone's keeping tabs on over the next week. And Elias, we will start with you. 
Well, I, I'm going to break the rules slightly because I'm looking around two weeks from now. We're reaching one of my favorite days of the year. I'm sure everyone keeps it on their calendar. It's the end of the state fiscal year, so we can start mm-hmm. getting all of the state spending data for the year. We can see where all the monies went. And uh, I'm really interested to see how much Medicaid money has been spent because some of that data is you just really don't know until it's all uh, been finalized. And that will be coming out soon, so I'm looking forward to that. Aaron, what about you? Well, first of all, I want to know how many podcasts in the same episode talk about turbulent plains and leaky incontinent cows. Mm. I think that's a unique market niche that we can form. you got to give the people what they want. More than you think, Aaron. More than you think. (laughs) That's right. Um, So, I mean, I I mentioned some of the same things that Elias just mentioned, but also at the federal level, Congress right now is putting together a, a tax bill, and they're also gearing up for the appropriations fight. So we just had this debt ceiling stuff recently, but now really the rubber meets the road as far as what the federal government's going to be spending money on and, and whether we can see tax relief because the tax cuts that passed in 2017, a number of those provisions are already expiring and then a bunch more will expire in 2025. All right, and David. SB 190, which is the state legislation to allow see, allow counties to grant property tax freezes for seniors. The governor hasn't signed it yet. And hopefully he won't. Hopefully he'll veto it. Uh, Post-Dispatch had a story the other day about how some school administrators and some county officials have launched an effort to convince him to veto it. And while I might very rarely agree with the Missouri Association of Counties and the School Administrators Association and various other groups like that, I certainly agree with them on this one. This is a bad bill. We should not be granting seniors property tax freezes. There's no reason why a senior citizen with a similar home, with similar public services to their neighbor who's not a senior, should be getting a property tax freeze. They should be paying the same rates. So hopefully the governor will veto that. Uh, I was at St. Louis County Council last night testifying against the bill that they, they're sort of pre-jumping this whole thing and they have a bill up to grant this property tax freeze to seniors, even though the governor hasn't even signed the bill yet. So I was testifying against that and hoping hoping to pay attention and hoping that these poor ideas are stopped in a variety of ways. All right. And as always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Elias, David, Aaron, thank you very much. Thank you.